Well, praise God. So like I said, we're going to go ahead and get started and uh, we'll do Romans chapter 4 and 5 this morning. And I've entitled this one, Faith, Righteousness, and Eternal Life. Because as we've looked at the last three chapters and chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been, been going on and talking about how that uh, the law makes no one righteous, but it's actually faith in Jesus that makes someone righteous. And he's been preaching this. And the problem was, is the Jews at the time were saying that, hey, you're throwing away what we've always believed. You're trying to replace what we've believed with something else. And Paul says, no, it's actually all written throughout the Old Testament. If you go through, the, the law and the prophets testify to Jesus Christ being our Lord and Savior, and they testify to faith by righteousness. And in chapter 4, he's going to really dig into it. He's going to go back into the Scripture and show that the Bible says that it is actually... Uh, faith, our belief and trust in God, that his righteousness gets attributed to us because of that. And he's going to spend a time looking at Abraham, who was actually, or Abram at the time, he was Abram before he was given the promise, and God changed his name to Abraham, which, as you guys know, means father of many nations. But Abram was, uh, believed God, and that was attributed to him as righteousness, as we'll see. And he's the father of the Jewish faith. Jewish faith. That's where it all started. It was in, it was in, uh, Abram. So we're going to see that, that Judaism is actually based on faith, not on righteousness by the law. Amen? And then in chapter 5, he goes to spend a time showing that that's how we are saved. And today is this Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that, that makes us righteous. And it's faith in, his, in believing that his death cleanses us and his life gives us new life. We are justified by his death, but we have life in his life, his resurrection. Amen. So the first scripture we're going to look at is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, like I said, we finished the last chapter with Paul saying that the law and the prophets testify to salvation or righteousness by faith. And he's going he's to dig in. He's going to say, all right, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to Abraham, the father of our faith, and let's take a look at what's going on in his life. See, Abraham was the Jew's forefather according to the flesh. Basically, if you were a, a Jew, you could trace your lineage back through Abraham because he was, he was the the first Jew. He was the one, the first one to receive circumcision. He was the first one to, to receive that covenant from God. And everybody was from his lineage. And it says that he is our forefather according to the flesh. So basically Paul's saying, you know what? To prove that righteousness comes by faith, let's go back to the beginning. We're not going to start somewhere in the middle. It didn't change over time. Let's go back to the beginning where Judaism starts. And that's where he goes is to Abraham. And then it says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Basically, if Abraham could have lived perfect, if Abraham did live perfect, he would have something to boast about, about before man. He could go before man and say, look how good I'm doing. Look how great of a life I live. You know, I always do the right thing. I always, I always do everything perfect. And, and he could boast before man and how awesome he's doing. But he couldn't boast before God. You know, I find it's, it's strange to have the created thing boast to the one who creates it. You know, it's, it, that would be an impossible thing. 
Because if something created you, you can't boast in how good your dreams are. I created you to be that way. Because he, he could boast before man, but he could never boast before God, even if he could live perfect. But we all know, without even looking at the Bible, we all know just by looking at our own life that it's impossible to live perfect. No matter how hard we try, without Jesus, no matter how hard you try, you always fail, you always slip up. There's always something that creeps in. We can't do it without Jesus. It's impossible to justify oneself. You know, the teaching at the time was that Abraham's works were so great, they were so awesome, that uh, they actually passed down to his descendants. It was because Abraham did such a good job was why uh, God made a covenant with him. And, and his works were so amazing, they were so great that they passed down through his descendants. And that's how they could claim part of what was promised to Abraham. However, Paul says that it's, it's not his works that initiated the blessing to be passed down, but it was actually, it was actually his, his faith. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, Abraham, is, I think we've talked about his life a little bit, but he gave up everything. God asked him to pack it up and leave. He left his family. He left everything to go to a new land to where he had never been before. He didn't know what was coming ahead, but, but God said go, and he trusted God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And we'll see as, as God promises to make him the father of many nations that uh, he looks at himself and his, his wife and, and they're just old and they can't have kids, but God says, I'll make you the father of many nations. And he doesn't have a descendant. He doesn't have a child. Seems like it would be impossible, but he trusted God. He believes God. And therefore, it's credited to him as righteousness. So in Genesis 15, 1-6, where this is quoting from, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is, born in my, is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And, Lord said, and he said to him, the Lord said to him, So shall your descendants be. It says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. It wasn't about how good Abraham did, but it was because Abraham trusted God. And he says it was, Paul uses it was credited to his account, which is actually a banking term. And we're going to see this, this word used over and over to describe righteousness. It's credited to our account. It's given to us. Not because we earned it, but someone put it to our account because we believe in Jesus. You see, the thing is, it's not, it's not our acts that make us right. It's not who we are, what we look like. You know, how, if we have a six-pack or an eight-pack, or if we're a little overweight, it doesn't matter if we have awesome hair or, or not. It doesn't matter if we've done all the right things. We have a great job. We have a poor job. It doesn't matter if, if we've helped everybody our whole life, if we've been selfish our whole life. None of that matters. It's whether we believe God. And I thank God when those negative things that we might have been, when we believe God and we trust in Him, and Jesus comes into our life, that old stuff, that bad stuff is pushed away, and we're made brand new. And those things that were are not anymore, amen? Now, there's students in a sculptor studio, and they were, they were coming for the last day of lessons. And after several months, 
they had tried and applied what they had learned from the teacher. And their one assignment for the course was to create a statue that symbolized the perfection of man. Now each student stood behind his or her finished work, waiting for the teacher's evaluation. The first student's statue looked pretty good to the untrained eye. The impressive image appeared to be without flaw. The skilled teacher took one look and remarked, No, this one will not do. You have his eyes looking down. The teacher went on to the next student, whose statue looked even better than the first, but once again the teacher noticed a flaw. No, this one does not pass. You have his eyes closed. The third student's statue did not have the same graceful curves as the other two. The features of the face were not sharp and striking. While he was working on his statue, a large crack had occurred right in the middle of the stone. Try as he did, the crack was impossible to hide. The student hung his head down, expecting to hear the same judgment upon his work as the others. And the teacher says, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Look at the eyes. They are looking up. Taken aback, the the third student asked his teacher, Master, I do not fully understand. My work is marred with an obvious defect, and my craftsmanship is awful when compared to the other statues. What is so important about the eyes? And the sculptor looked at all the students and said, The first two statues were made with the hopes of being judged perfect. But the man who looks away from God will never be made perfect. However, the man who looks up towards God will be made perfect by him, despite his many flaws. You know, God is our creator. He's the master craftsman. And it doesn't matter what's wrong with us. As long as we look to him, he'll make us whole. Amen. And we'll continue on in Romans 4, verses 4 through 8. It says, Now to the one who works his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credited righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You know, there's a difference between working for something and earning it and receiving it freely as a gift. You know, we all know the difference. Intellectually, we all know the difference. We know that when you go to work for your job, you expect a paycheck. It's what's due to you. But when we give, the, give something as a gift freely, then it's, it's given without uh, any expect in return, without anything required in return. You didn't have to go in and put in 20 hours to make sure that you got that. You know, when we give birthday gifts to one another, you know, there's no expectation that the, that the receiver is going to go have to, to uh, mow our lawn so that they can get our birthday gift, right? We all know that intellectually, but we tend to, with God, somehow it slips in that we have to, we have to earn what he's given us. We have to do all these things. But the truth is that we can't earn our own right. There's nothing that we could, even if we wanted to, there's nothing that we could do. See, it's like the problem with trying to earn your own righteousness is like starting a project or a job that you can never deliver, that you can never accomplish. You know, it'd be like someone who, who promises to deliver a building and they'd promise to deliver it in six months, and it's going to be this big, but they don't have the resources, they don't have the manpower, they don't have the materials. You know, trying to earn your own righteousness is much like promising that building, but not having what you need to finish it. It's impossible for you to finish it and, and turn over the finished product. It's impossible. And that's what it is when we try to, to make ourselves righteousness. We don't have what it takes. We don't have the manpower, the resources, the money, nor the time to turn over a finished product to God. But I thank God that he doesn't leave us that way, that, that he did it for us, that he paid for all of us so that we could be presented righteous before him. 
The Bible says that it's your faith, not your works, that gets righteousness credited to your account. You know right here where it says that the one does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. This word believes right here, I think also many times we, we uh, accidentally see that as a past in actions. We, we believed once. You know, we believed that one day. But the Greek word in particular, this is a present action. It's we believe. We continue to believe. Those who continue to believe in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then he, Paul goes on and moves on to David. You know, this psalm right here that, that uh, David is quoting, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's from Psalm 51, 14 through 17. And David says this, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. I apologize, this isn't where he's quoting from, but this is David speaking in uh, similar terms. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So both of these passages where he's quoting David uh, in the Old Testament here, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And the scripture I just read from Psalms 51, 14 through 70, or right after David had his mishap with Bathsheba. Bathsheba. <laughs> Bathsheba, sorry. And uh, it was right after he just committed adultery. And not only that, he, he sent her husband out to be killed. He murdered her husband so that he wouldn't get caught. And he understands that, uh, that there's no... If you read that psalm, he says that, Lord, you have not desired sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. The problem was for the sin David just committed... There was no sacrifice. There, it was death. You couldn't sacrifice to be forgiven for what he had just done. But David understood that it's not about sacrifice. It's not about the law. His righteousness is not based on what he's done or what he could do. But it was actually based on the grace of God. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. And then we see here, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. You know, the thing I notice the most about this is that we're showing that these are broken men, that these are men who have sinned. What, what he's talking about here is... <laughs> oh, that a whistle is the... the notification of this thing. I guess I better turn it down. But it's, uh, it drives my wife crazy because, what's whistling? <laughs> Praise God. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but basically it says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. You know what it doesn't say? Blessed are those who have never sinned. Blessed are those who have lived a perfect life. These, 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 these people that are blessed, they've, they've messed up. They've, they've screwed up. But he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not, take in, will not take into account. You know, our sin is not taken into account because Jesus paid for it. 
You know, don't, don't, don't be confused. Your sin was accounted for, just not by you. Your sin was paid for, just not by you. Jesus paid that price. But because of that, our sin is not taken to our account. Our account has been credited with righteousness. Amen. In Romans 4, 9-12, through 12, it says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Basically what he's saying is this on the Jew, those who are under the law, or the Gentiles, those who are uncircumcised. It says, For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. You know, the answer to this is the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? It's both. The blessing is passed on to those who follow the law who were circumcised. But it also follows on to to those who are not, the Gentiles. Basically, it says that Abraham is the, where is it at? is the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Basically, all those Gentiles who believe he's their father as well, that righteousness must be credited to them, and the father of the circumcision to those not only who are of the circumcision, but also those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. It's not only circumcision that the reason that their blessings of Abraham are passed down to the Jews. The reason that it's passed down is that they follow in his footsteps, the footsteps of faith, believing God for righteousness. You know, the, the circumcision is not going to save anybody. Following the law is not going to save anybody, but it's trusting God that will be considered righteousness, even to the Jews. You know, when Abraham, back before this, he was known as Abram until his circumcision, he was considered by, by righteous by God. We, we have God say that you are righteous. But by Jewish standards, he was a Gentile at the time. It's kind of odd that the first Jew was a Gentile, right? And they have all this anger for the Gentiles. And it turns out that that, that scripture where we said that, that uh, it was credited to him as righteousness, that happened somewhere between 13 to 15 years before he was circumcised. 13 to 15 years before God gave him that seal, that, that, uh, that covenant seal of circumcision. You see, as Paul says here, that, that was just a... It wasn't the circumcision that saved him. The circumcision was just a seal. It was a sign of the righteousness of faith that he had received while he was already circumcised, or he was already uncircumcised when he was considered righteous some 15 years earlier. You know, today, a circumcision of our, our heart is what's given as a sign to us. In Colossians 2, 10 through 12, it says, And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. You know, our, our signs today, our evidence today, of our faith, our righteousness, is a circumcision of the heart. God removed our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And then it's given as a seal because that's a constant reminder that God has given a promise and that he would keep his promise. 
And in today's life, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, it says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed that you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You know, God gave us the Holy Spirit as our seal, as our sign. You know, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us as a reminder of the righteousness that God has given inside of us. Amen. So we learn that it's not circumcision that makes one an heir, but following in the footsteps of faith. This means that to the Jews, their circumcision is nothing without faith as well. And this will have been a tough statement to them because they've always regarded Gentiles as the lesser. They've always regarded themselves as those who were loved by God, and the Gentiles were those who were, had their backs turned on them by God. And they've always regarded that this circumcision, this seal from God, proved that God loved them more than the Gentiles. But the truth is that Abraham is the father of those who are circumcised and those who are uncircumcised. Amen? Then in Romans 14, 13 through 15, it says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who were of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. You remember in Genesis chapter 13, 14 through 15, when uh, the Lord was talking to Abraham, he said, look to the, lift your eyes and look to the north and the south and the east and the west. He says, all this land is land which I will give you. The scripture says, the Lord said to Abraham in, in Genesis 13, verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eye and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. You know, this wasn't God telling him to look with his natural eyes. He was looking spiritually by faith. Basically, when you look north, south, east, and west, he's saying that this is the whole earth. It will be your descendants forever. And this is actually what the Jewish rabbis taught. This, this land was not just what Abraham could physically see, but this land was actually the entire earth, and it was going to belong to the descendants of Abraham. But the Bible says this promise was not granted by following some letter of the law, some pre-planned rules, but it was granted by faith. By faith, Abraham looked out. And, and received the promise to God that his descendants would, would, would inherit the entire earth. So then Paul goes on to say that if, if the, the heirs would be heirs only by law, but not through the righteousness of faith, it says, for if those who are law, of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Basically, if, if the promise is given to those who are of the law and not of faith, why even mention faith? Faith is made void. Faith is worthless. Why even bother talking about it? He says, and the promise is nullified. You know, this is a tough statement. The promise is nullified. You know, the, the reason why the, the promise would be nullified is because if it was given only by the law, we'd have our, our set of rules, our list of requirements that we have to make. But it's an impossible requirement. It's impossible for us because we are born broken. We'll go ahead and look and we'll see that, that sin reigns in us because of the one sin of Adam. Not even necessarily because of anything we've done. But because of that, we can't physically live our lives to the standards that God has made. And basically, it would be an empty promise if it could never be upheld. 
It would be an, if, if it wasn't based on faith and God made this promise to Abraham and all his descendants, it would be empty because they couldn't live up to the standards required. It would be like me saying, I promise that if you could run from here to Tucson on foot in 15 minutes, I'll give you a million. I promise to give you a million dollars if you could run there in 15 minutes. I mean, nobody can physically run there in 15 minutes. It's kind of an easy promise to make. It's something I'll never have to keep. That would be the promise God made. It would be empty. It would be nullified. See, the the Jews have a conundrum if it's by law that they're made an heir because they can't live up to that standard. And then it says, For the law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, there is no violation. You see, the, the law ends up being a measuring stick for sin. It ends up being the, the list of rules that we have to make. And we know that if we violate the law, the wages of sin is death, correct? So the law actually brings about wrath, is what he's saying, is, is that now that we have a law, if it's not based on righteousness, if it's based on the law, now God has to to be just. He has to, to have payment for those sins that were committed. But he says, when there is no law, there is no violation. When we're not subject to the law, there's no violation because Jesus paid the price for us. We don't have any violations that are held to our account because they were already paid for in Jesus and we're given his life and made brand new. And we're not held accountable for the mistakes that we've made in the sense that Jesus paid for them, not in the sense that you won't face consequences for doing stupid in this life. Amen? There's, there's a difference between being forgiven and paying an eternal consequence versus the consequences that we'll face in this life if we do stupid. Amen? Nobody's confused on that one? <laughs> As we continue on in Romans 14, 16 through 17, it says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all, the descendants not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations I have made you. In the presence of him he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls him into being that which does not exist. You know, in order for the promise of salvation and righteousness to be available to all, God made it available to all by faith according to grace. And grace is receiving something which we did not deserve on the basis of all that Christ accomplished on the cross. You know, in order for this to be made available to all, it had to have been done by faith because the law wasn't available to everybody. It was only available to the Jews. So the argument that Paul gets into here is that, that is the promise is guaranteed to all the descendants, not only of those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. See, the problem with this statement is, if it's only for those of the law, the Jews were just one nation. So what did God mean, I'll make you the father of many nations, if the Jews are just one? See, the thing is here that, that God is extending this promise to all who believe. And how many know that as we look today, there are believers in every single nation, almost every single nation in this world. There's, even in China and North Korea, places where you will be killed for being a believer, we have people in those nations that love God. And Abraham is their father, spiritually speaking, just as much as he's the Jew's father from a, from a fleshly standpoint. <coughs> 
If being an heir was only for the Jews, those who had the law, then how could he be the father to many nations? It would be an impossibility. This would be a weird statement from God, but I thank God that because by faith we are made sons of Abraham, then we are made sons of God, that we can all be part of it. And it's the many nations that are, that are included. But the problem is, is the Jews are offended. The Jews are offended that the Gentiles are included. But the truth is, the Jews should not have been offended by the fact that Abraham was righteous by faith and not of the law. They were actually offended that, that it was faith that made Abraham righteous, not his works. But the truth is, they shouldn't have been offended by that. They should have been rejoicing that God's grace and love and mercy and salvation was extended to the entire world. But just like today, even though he is the God who brings to life the dead and calls into existence that which is not, just like he's saying here, in the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, a God that is that powerful and can do those things, we still, even today, if we're too quick to judge the Jews for what they were doing, we find we do it today. We try to limit what God can do in our lives. We try to tell God, this is how it should work. You know, they, they, they don't dress nice enough. They don't smell nice enough. Oh, we don't want those kind of people in our church. We don't, we don't want those kind of people. You know, this salvation is only for the good people. We've heard so many stories, and as I, I it's, it must be a pretty common thing for pastors to do to their church to make this point, but I've heard so many and read so many stories of pastors dressing up as a homeless man and trying to attend their church and just see how they're treated. You know, we, we do the same thing that the Jews have done. We have to be careful because the love of God is not limited to anybody. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the sinners and the thieves and the robbers. And Jesus loves everybody just as much as he loves us. And we need to make sure that we're not trying to limit what God does the same as what the Jews were, thinking that it's only for a certain people. It's not. It's for everybody. He loves us all. Amen. In Romans 4, 18 through 21, it says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which he had spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. You see, the truth is, is that we see that, that Abraham's faith is evidenced not only by God saying that he's faithful, which, to be honest, should be enough, right? If God says somebody faithful, we're not going to... Somebody is faithful, and that's going to be credited to them as righteous. We're not going to argue that, that, uh, that God is wrong. But we don't just see that. It's written for our benefit. We see his faith evidenced in his life. We see the believing in God that was credited as righteousness. He chose to believe God even when it seemed like what was being promised was impossible. You know, we don't think about the position that Abraham was in sometimes. We look at Abraham and, and we see this mighty man of God who trusted God and, and we don't think about what was going on in his life at the time. Abraham was just told by God to leave his family. He left everybody. Guess what? There's no Christians. At, there's not even any Jews at the time. There's nobody. He's the only one that trusts God. You know, we have each other even in a small church like this, we have each other to encourage us, to lift ourselves up, to be there for one another. When we're doubting or having problems, we have each other. 
Abraham didn't have anybody like that. We have the Bible to see God's Word. We can see God working in everybody's life all through the Old Testament to the New Testament. We can look and see that God moved and God worked and God was faithful to those who believed. Abraham didn't have any of that. You know, Abraham was, was alone. You know, he heard, he heard God's voice and he chose to believe it. But you might say, well, Pastor Wayne, if I heard God's voice, I would definitely believe it. But the truth is, most of us, the first thing we'd think is, is there a speaker somewhere? Or is somewhere, somewhere hid something? Am I going crazy? Am I hearing voices in my head? Maybe I had too much. Maybe I shouldn't have ate that pizza so late last night. That's where our mind would initially go. But Abraham chose to trust God. Well, what about when God doesn't speak to you in audible voice, but from the inside he tells you, go speak to that person. Go tell them about my son. And we began to instantly, oh, it must be the devil. He just wants me to embarrass myself. The truth is that, that Abraham was in a tough spot, but he chose to believe God. It wasn't easy for him to believe God, but he chose to do it anyway. And then on top of that, God makes him a promise that had to just blow his mind. He says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, but God, I don't have a son it says right here that without becoming weak in the faith, he contemplated his own body. And what I like about this is a lot of people talk about blind faith. Oh, you're just blind faith. It doesn't say that Abraham ignored what was really going on. He contemplated his body. He recognized he's 100 years old. Sarah's in her 90s, and she's barren, the deadness of her womb. I mean, even if Abraham was like, man, I'm pretty old, but I can still swing. But man, look how old she is. She can't have a baby. You know, he's old. She's old. And, and he contemplates his own body. And he, but he doesn't let that weaken his faith. It says, without becoming weak. It says, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. You know, when people are hurting in their body, they have cancer, and, and we say, you are healed in Jesus' name. We're not ignoring what's actually going on. We understand the fact is that they have cancer. But the truth is that in Jesus Christ, they have been made whole. And our, our faith will not waver. We're going to trust what God says, because no matter what our body's doing right now, or his body's doing right now, that what God's Word says is true. We contemplate the situation, but we choose to believe God. Amen? And the amazing thing is, is, it says, He did not waver in unbelief, but He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. He looked at His, his old broken body and His wife's old broken body, and He didn't grow weak in the faith, but His faith grew stronger in a God who could make even us have a kid, and make him be the father of many nations. See, I mean, what God, this is when God changes his name to Abraham, the father of many nations. Can you imagine going to his friends? You know, he goes back to one of the tents back at camp and says, hey, God just changed my name to Abraham. To what? To father of many You realize how old you are, right? I mean, but he trusted God. Regardless of what other people might say, regardless of what his body was telling him, what the devil might tell him, he trusted God. And we follow in the footsteps of Abraham. And our faith, just like his, is credited to us as righteousness. Amen.
There's a story of a rich Christian who had a large company of employees. And many of them owed him money. And he was constantly trying to teach them something about Christianity. And one day he hit upon a, hit upon a plan. He says he posted a notice for his employees to see that said, all those who will come to my office between 11 and 12 o'clock on Thursday morning to present an honest statement of their debts will have them canceled at once. The debtors read the notice with a great deal of skepticism, and on Thursday morning, they gathered in the street in front of his office. Not one of them went to the door. Instead, they gossiped and complained about their employer and ridiculed the notice he had posted. They said it, they said it didn't make any sense, but finally at 11.45, one man jumped forward and dashed up the steps into the office and presented his statement. Why are you here? The rich man asked him. Because you promised to cancel the debts of all those who come as you instructed. And the boss replied, Do you believe the promise? And the man said, Yes, I do. He says, Why do you believe it? Persisted the employer. He says, Because although it was too much for me to understand, I know that you are a good man and would not deceive anybody. The rich man took the bill and marked it paid in full, at which time the poor man, overcome, cried out, I knew it, I told them so. They said it wouldn't be true, and now I'm going out to show them. Wait, said the boss, it is not quite twelve o'clock. The others are not entitled to any special proof of my sincerity. And when the clock struck twelve, the forgiven debtor ran out, waving his receipt in the face of his friends. And with a mad rush, they made it for the door, but it was too late. The door was locked. And the truth is that God, much like this employer, is extending his hand to cancel the debts. And all you have to do is trust that he'll do what he said he'll do. Many people don't believe what God says is true. Many people believe they don't even have any debts. But the truth is that we have a short amount of time to go into that office and ask God to mark him, mark him as forgiven. We have a short amount of time to have them paid in full because once you die, it's too late. You know, it's just like the Lazarus who was sitting in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man who died saying, hey, can I go, go tell my brothers that uh, this will happen so that they can believe and make it into, make it into heaven. And, uh, and Abraham said, no, it's too late. He says, well, send somebody back from the dead to tell them. They'll believe somebody back from the dead. And he says, if they wouldn't believe the prophets that I sent, they're not going to believe someone coming back from the dead either. The truth is, God is offering a promise to cancel out all of our debts. And we just need to go and say, Lord, thank you. I believe you. I trust you. And that's what's credited to us as righteousness. Just like this, this man who went into his employer. Amen? In Romans 4, 23-25, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... Also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace in which we stand. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Did I skip a verse? I think I did. Let's go back a step. Romans 4, 23-25. Therefore, it was also credited to Him as righteousness. And not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. As those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead... He who was also delivered over because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. You know, as we've already talked about this morning, it was Abraham's faith that was credited as righteousness to his account. But Paul says, you know what? This is written down. We, we recorded this not because we wanted to show how awesome Abraham was. 
You know, this wasn't written in the scriptures so we could honor Abraham because of his greatness of faith or his greatness of works. But it was actually written for us. It was written so that we could learn how that we are to achieve the same righteousness. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You know, this was written so that we could learn how we can achieve the same righteousness that Abraham had received. And it says, for our sake also, it was written. And then finally we learn that there's just a single requirement, and that is that we believe in Jesus. It says it would be credited to us as those who believe in him who has raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over because of our transgressions, because of our sin and failure. He was delivered over and paid that price. And then he was raised because of our justification. He was raised from the dead, giving us a brand new life, proving that we've been justified before our Father. Amen. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, the book of Romans is using a logical argument to show where faith, where righteousness comes from. And Paul is over and over making the same statement that it's, we are justified by faith. And then we start to see the results of being justified by faith. The first result is that we have obtained our introduction by faith in the grace in which we stand. Saying we have obtained our introductions, we've been introduced to God. We have the opportunity to come and speak to God ourselves by this faith, by the grace in which we stand. Because we've been made righteousness, righteous, we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through anybody. We don't have to send somebody through the veil to speak to God because we have access to God through Jesus Christ. Also, it says here, the first thing is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this peace that it's talking about, it's not talking about internal peace. It's not talking about feeling good. or What it's talking about is, is a relationship. Before Jesus, before you're made right with God, we're considered enemies of God. But because of Jesus, we have peace with God. We are no longer enemies with God. Jesus took care of that which was driving a wedge in between us and God. And like I said, we have access to God, this introduction by faith. You remember in Luke 23, uh, 45, it says, Because the sun was obscured and the veil of temple was torn in two. When Jesus died, that veil that separated man from God was torn in two. And in Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we can have confidence to enter the holy place with God because Jesus made us clean. You know, the priests used to have to go through this whole ceremony to be made clean, had that rope tied around their waist so they could go into the Holy of Holies. And if they weren't right with God, they, they died and they drug them out with a rope because they couldn't go in after them. But now we can go in with confidence that we have been made right with God by the blood of the Lamb. You know, grace, this grace in which we stand, is the key differentiator between us, Christianity, and every other religion in the world. 
there was a British conference on comparative religions. It says there was experts around the world debating that if any belief was unique to the Christian faith, what belief was unique to Christianity? And they began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered in the room. He says, what's this rumpus about? And he heard him reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, that's easy, it's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no string attached, seemed to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offered a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. You know, we earn our approval through God and trusting in Him, and He offers it freely as a gift. It's not something that we have to do or earn. Finally, it says that we, <clears throat> that we uh, also exult in the hope of the glory of God. You know, Christian hope, like I've said before, is not like worldly hope. You know, I hope we have pizza for dinner. I hope it doesn't rain. Christian hope is confidence in God. You know, we have confidence that we will also enter in the glory of God because Jesus did that for us. Next, we see that we're to exalt in our tribulations. This is kind of a tough one because nobody likes to, to exalt in stuff that's not going right. But the reason we do this is because through tribulations, when we struggle, we grow. It says here that we exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. You know, when times are rough, we have to persevere, continue trusting God. And we, as we continue to trust in God, we see things start to change. We find out that as we persevere, we have proven character. Our character, it doesn't become something that we, that we have to physically think about doing, but it actually becomes a part of us. It is our character to trust God. And as we make it through, we persevere through our trials, our character is proven. And then it says that proven character brings hope. Like I said, hope is confidence in God. As we continue to trust in God and we see Him work in our lives, as we see Him work through these tribulations, then our, our confidence is strengthened in Him. And it says this hope, this confidence in Him does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. You know, if you'll put your hope, your confidence in God, you will not be disappointed. God will always be there for you. He was, confidence in God is the only thing that will never let you down. And then finally it says that His love was poured out into us through our hearts the Holy Spirit who has given to us. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies that we are children of God. In Romans 8, 16 through 17, it says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And that suffering with him is by faith. Obviously, we're not going to go on the cross with Jesus, but we, by faith, we're Killed, buried, and risen with Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, God poured out his love by sending his son. Before we were before we were saved, he sent his son, who made us saved, but he continues to pour out his love into us by sending his Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us, who testifies with us that we are children of God, whose power works through us to bring others to Christ, to save others. Amen. Romans 5, 6-11, through 11, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man. Someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we do also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You know, something that we have to be aware of and we need to, to understand deeply is that, uh, that Christ died for us while we were still helpless, while we were still sinners. It says, for while we were helpless, Christ died for us. <clears throat> and then right here it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Christ didn't die for you because you were good enough. Christ didn't die for you because you were trying really, really hard. Christ died for you while you were broken, while you were still a sinner. While we were all sinners, Christ died for us. And that goes for everybody. You know, Christ went to the cross because he loved us. He didn't do it for who we were, but in spite of who we were. And I thank God for that. And the truth is that when you give your life for someone, it's not done flippantly. Do you know that you have a better chance of a stranger risking their life for you than someone that knows you? Because if it's, a, if it's a stranger, you don't know anything about them. You don't know anything about the good, but you don't know anything about the bad, and we assume that there's good in them. You know, you might, for someone that you don't know, you might push them out of the way of a train, but there's people that you know that you might not. <laughs> you know, it says that one would hardly die for a righteous man. Perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. Perhaps if you knew they were an awesome man, then you would trade your life for theirs. But the truth is, giving your life for somebody is a, is, is a big deal. It's, Christ said it's the greatest love you can show for another person. But you know, the strange thing is, is that God knows everything about you. Jesus wasn't confused as to who you were. You know, the very same things that, that we've done that someone might not be willing to save us from. Yeah, we know what he's done. Let's just let him go are the very same thing that Jesus knew. Matter of fact, Jesus knows the things that we haven't told anybody. He knows those things that are buried deep inside that we're too ashamed to even admit to our spouses or to our closest friends. He knew all that, but he still chose to give his life for you anyway. And then Paul goes on to say that if he was willing to die for you, while you were a sinner, while you were broken, while you were ungodly and an enemy of God, if he was willing to die for you then, he says, much more now that you've been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. He was willing to die for you while you were broken. Then how much more so is he willing to, to, to save you while you're not? He's made you righteous. You're no longer that person that's broken, that's done all those bad things. If he was willing to do that for you then, how much more so now that you are righteous, that you are justified, will he save you from the wrath that's to come? Because we talked earlier, there is a wrath to come. Sin will be paid for. The difference is, did Jesus pay your bill? Or are you going to pay it yourself? 
If you trust in God, He's going to save you from the wrath to come because it was already paid in Him. Amen? And John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, who hears My word and believes in Him, who sent Me as eternal life and does not come into judgment, but He has passed out of life into death. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from wrath to come. You know, we weren't designed for wrath. In Jesus, we're designed for life. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 8.1, it says, Therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, salvation is so much more than the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are forgiven in His death, but we are saved in His life. We are made brand new. We don't exalt in ourselves through this, but we exalt now in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, who we made brand new. We don't boast in our good things that we do now, the life that we live now. We don't boast in them of ourselves because we know it is not us that's doing it. It's Him living inside of us. If you're to boast in somebody, boast in the Lord and the great work that He's done in your life. It says we'll exalt, we'll boast, we'll lift up God through our Lord Jesus Christ because He has reconciled us to Him. Amen. Romans 5.12-14 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of who was to come. You know, this, this idea of, of one, through one man sin entering the world is a tough one. I think we've talked about it before because we're like, man, why am I being held responsible for something that Adam did so many years ago? Why am I being held responsible for something this man did? But we realize that it's actually the grace of God that that happens because we find that, that one, ultimately we couldn't live up to it for ourselves. But because God has, has made it that one, one man's sin entered the entire human race, sin was freed into the world, that means that through one man, he can reconcile all, all, all to himself. Because if that was not the case, if we were all left to our own devices, we could never live up to the standard that God has, which is perfection. We would never make it. So God in his grace and wisdom made it so we could be reconciled through Jesus Christ. Amen. It entered, sin entered the world through the transgression of one man. And this sin led to the death and has spread to all, all men. And we are now born broken and we all sin because it's spread into this world. And Paul begins to show that in the beginning, there, in the beginning up until Moses, there was no law. From Adam until Moses, there was no law. Even when, even when uh, Abraham was living, there was no law. And it says, for until the law, sin was in the world. How do we know that sin was in the world? Because there was death. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. And when sin was released into the world, death was released through sin. So we know that sin was active in the world, even though Paul says here that 
sin was not imputed. Basically what he's saying is sin had not been ascribed a value, if you will. Basically there was no, no list that said this is sin, this is not sin. But it was still there. You know, it wasn't the law that made sin come into being. It was Adam's first sin. And it's proven because there was death. And it says that it was even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What does he mean by that? That God spoke to Adam and was basically there was one law at that time. Don't eat from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one law. That was the one revealed law of God to Adam. And he broke it. And he was considered unrighteous because of that. And sin entered into this world. Now it says that all those people after him didn't sin in that same likeness. There was no law. Sin had been given a value. Sin had not been imputed. There was no law. So these people that came after Adam could not have done the same thing. They could have not have broken a revealed law of God because there was no revealed law of God yet. That didn't happen until Moses, right? But we know sin still reigned because they were dying. So as we continue on, Paul says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression is of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. See, the, the free gift, as Paul contrasts the free gift and the, the one sin of Adam, the one that was spread through all the, the one that, was, that Paul showed through Scripture reigned in men because even without the law, people were dying. Sin was reigning. The difference was that, that the one sin brought death to everybody. But the free gift is not like that. The free gift doesn't bring death to everybody. It brings life to all through one man. Because one man, many died. By one man, Jesus, grace and life can abound to us all. Like I said, if we were all held to our own standards, we couldn't make it. If we were to complain that we were being held accountable for Adam's one sin, and, and we say that, no, we want to do it on our own, we would never make it. But through God's wisdom, we were able to be reconciled by the one man, Jesus Christ. Condemnation was brought by one, and justification is now brought by one. Death reigned because of one man, but now life can reign in all of us because of one man, Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, 18 through 21, it says, So then, it's through one transgression that resulted in condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, <clears throat> there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteous to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's continuing on to show that the one act of Adam caused condemnation, but the one act of, of Jesus brings life back to all of us. It results in our justification and life to all of us. 
through Adam's disobedience, we're all made sinners, but through Adam's, or through Jesus, the second Adam's obedience, we will all be made, the many will be made righteous. And then it says, the law came in so the transgression would increase. You know, the law came when, when God brought the law. He didn't give it to replace, replace grace. He didn't, didn't do it so that we could get rid of grace and now we would have this law. But rather the law came in to prove our need for grace. The law came in to highlight how bad we needed God's grace because we couldn't do it our own. It says the law came in so that transgression would increase. What that means is that our eyes were open to how much transgression we were actually living. Our eyes were open to how bad we were messing up. Our eyes were open to the fact that we couldn't do this on our own. It actually highlighted our need for grace. And that's why it says here that even though sin increased, even though we were made aware of sin, that means that God's grace abounded all the more. We were made even more aware of our need for God's grace and how powerful it really is. Amen. You know, the truth is that without Jesus, we're all lost. There's not a single person in this world who can look at their life and say that they're doing it all right. Even people that they want to say they don't believe in God, the atheists out there, they say they don't want to believe in God. This can't be true. They can't look at their life and, and say that I'm doing it right. I'm doing everything perfect. Even those who follow other religions that have their own system of, of, uh, of rules and regulations that they have to attain to to gain approval from their God, none of them will ever say that I've followed these perfectly. Matter of fact, those lists of rules just go to highlight how much that we fail. They just go to, to show how much we need God, God's grace. You know, I look at why was the law given? Why do we, why do we have it? It's because if we didn't have it, we could always say, oh no, we could do this on our own. But the law came to show us that there's no possible way we can do this on our own. We need the grace and the love of God. And I thank God that God didn't just leave us that way. God didn't just make it point out our flaws and leave us to our own devices. You know, the, the, the promise was not nullified because God allowed righteousness to come through faith. Our believing in Jesus Christ is what credits to our account righteousness. And we're not left in that broken position. We're not left knowing that we need God's grace, but none is available. We're left knowing that we need God's grace, but His grace is readily available. It's given freely as a gift, and it's available to each and every one of us. And I thank God that because of His great love towards us, that we can be made brand new. And not just us who are saved, not just Christians, but that gift is available to everybody who is willing to receive it. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, stand to our feet and we'll close the service.